evening, we're going to be looking at a pretty familiar story. It's one that many of you have probably read. It's one of you that, one that many of you probably grew up hearing if you grew up in the church. Even if you didn't, you've probably heard this one. Most of us know the story of Noah and the flood and the ark, right? I mean, it's a great story. We have giraffes, cute little hamsters, they're cute little bunnies, they're colorful parrots, they're lions and tigers and bears. Okay, good. I was hoping someone would get that. That's good. But this, this story is a classic. I mean, it's full of cute animals. It, it even has a boat, right? And, and we're in Wisconsin, so who doesn't like cute animals and who doesn't like boats? I know that I love cute animals and I love boats. But seriously, sometimes when we approach passages that are the most familiar to us, that those are the ones that are hardest for us to understand. They're hardest for us to see new truths in. I think sometimes we get distracted by the little details that we already know, and we're not patient enough to notice new things. And sometimes we've not learned a passage accurately. We've not learned it well, and it's hard for us to, be, to let go of those preconceived notions we have about a passage and not be challenged by it. Noah is one of the most recognizable stories in the entire Bible, and my invitation to you guys tonight is to approach it with new eyes. Be willing to see new things and be willing to be challenged by what God says to you in it about himself, about yourself, and about the world that you live in. So just a little bit of context for what we've been looking at so far. We've been going straight through the book of Genesis, and it's been one big story so far, and we're going to see that continue uh, this evening. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw God's creation. We saw that God created a good world a world where he was present with his people, where he was their loving rule and they lived, ruler, and they lived with him in peace. And we got uh, a picture there of a world that, as Josh told us, is sometimes unrelatable for us. We, we look at the world of Genesis 1 and 2, and we can see right away that it's just not the world that we live in right now. And it's this unrelatable thing. But once we hit Genesis 3, we see the fall. We see sin into the world through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, through the rebellion of humanity in the garden against God's rule. And all of a sudden, the world that we see now starts to make a little bit more sense to us. We see why there's violence in the world. We see why there's sin in our own hearts. We see why, why is the world not the way that it should be. We get that clear picture in Genesis 3. We see darkness invade the hearts of humanity. And we see the entire world suffering as a result. But over the the past couple weeks especially, we've seen, as as Josh said, we've seen glimmers of hope among the bad news. Glimmers of hope within the bad news that we see in the story. So after uh, after the fall, we're just going to look at a couple of these, and I think these are going to lead us well into our passage tonight. So after the fall, God promised to Adam and Eve an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent, that salvation would come through a wounded Savior, And then we see God clothing them with animal skins, clothing their nakedness and their shame. God promises that offspring, but right away we see Adam and Eve's children fighting. We see Cain killing Abel. They're not doing much serpent crushing at that point. Cain is murdering his brother, but we see this glimmer of hope that God continues this promised line for this descendant of Adam and Eve through Seth, a new son for Adam and Eve. And then we saw last week, we saw in the descendants of Adam, we saw descendant after descendant through this pattern of death, that they live a certain amount of time, they have children, but they die. And we get two glimmers of hope in that story. We see Enoch, 
who was a righteous man who walked with God, and God took him away. And the second leads us right into our story for tonight. We see Noah, the son of a man named Lamech. We see Noah um, as this hopeful man, this man that would bring rest uh, into God's creation again. So with those glimmers of good news amidst the bad news, uh, we still see that the story is getting worse and worse, that there's this downward spiral of sin in the world after the fall, but God continues to give us reason for hope. And it's that world that we're entering into tonight. It's a world that's similar to the world that we look at right now, and that's where we're coming in, and that's what we're going to see. And it makes us ask a couple questions, I think, as we come in. The first um, and main one that we're going to be looking at is what hope of restoration and salvation can there be in light of God's judgment of sin? What hope can there be in light of God's judgment against a world where sin is bringing in this downward spiral of violence and corruption? Because if, if God has to deal with the problem of sin, then we're all in for a bad ending. Then the right thing maybe for God to do would just be to wipe it all away. To, to just get rid of it, to just destroy the world. That's one of the things we're going to be looking at this evening. But we're going to see more than just God's purposes of judgment. We're going to see that God has good intentions for his people and for his world. And that despite and even through God's judgment against sin, Genesis 6 through 9, what we're looking at tonight, it's going to show us God's purposes of salvation and God's purposes of recreation. We're going to have three main ideas as we go through this passage. So if, you want, if you're taking notes, these will be helpful for you. The first is the rising tide. God saves through judgment. The second is the tide turns. God saves through recreation. And the third is life on dry land. God saves through setting aside judgment. So again, the rising tide. God saves through judgment. The tide turns. God saves through recreation. And life on dry land. God saves through setting aside judgment. And one final note before we look at our passage, uh, since we're going to be tackling almost four whole chapters of the Bible, I'm not going to be able to read it all to you tonight because that would just be the whole sermon. I'd just read for 20 minutes and then we'd be done. Um, but I'm going to be looking at different chunks as we go through. And so keep your Bible open because it's going to be really helpful for, for you as I reference different verses as we, as we bound through this whole story through these four chapters. And I'm Also, I'm not going to be able to address every challenge. I'm not going to be able to address every theological point um, that comes up in the whole story of Noah. So don't expect that tonight. And if there are questions that are unanswered for you, that's a great thing to bring to your community group, to bring to me, to bring to Josh. We can talk through those things. But I'm not going to be able to hit everything tonight. So I encourage you to read through these chapters on your own. I encourage you to read through them uh, with your family this week. Uh, And again, if you'd like resources to dive into it more, um, yeah, feel free to ask me or Josh for that. So please open your Bibles to Genesis 6. We're going to start in verse 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the pew in front of you. So I'm going to be reading to start Genesis 6. Find my page here, verses 9 through 22. So hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, 
and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. For everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask as we sang that you would show us Christ tonight. And as we're looking at the story of Noah, that you would give us new eyes to see what you have for us. Help us to understand the challenging parts, and especially, again, help us to see Christ and our need for him this evening. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we begin in Genesis 6-9, we see that, like the earlier sections in Genesis, we run into the header, these are the generations of. And that's the organizing principle for the book of Genesis, these, these statements of these are the generations of. And here we have the generations of Noah. And Noah has been introduced to us again in the previous chapters. We saw him as the son of Lamech, who would bring rest. And we saw that his name, Noah, actually is a play on the word rest, Noah is going to bring rest into God's creation, into God's world of violence. And here we learn more about this man. So Noah, his primary characteristic is that he is a righteous man. So if there's one thing you need to remember about Noah, he is a righteous man. He's also portrayed as blameless and is walking with God, which should remind us again of that last glimmer of hope we saw with Enoch. Enoch is a man who walks with God. Noah too walks with God. And establishing Noah as a righteous man in this story, it's meant to set a contrast between what we see then in verse 11, between him, the righteous man Noah, and the rest of this world. So starting in verse 11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So where Noah was a righteous man before God and walked with God, the rest of humanity was corrupt, the rest of humanity was violent. Again, after the fall, we saw this downward spiral of the effects of human rebellion on God's world. It began with brother killing brother. It escalated to Lamech, so not Noah's dad Lamech, but a different Lamech, boasting about his violence, being even better and greater than the violence of Cain. And here we see that the corruption of sin had permeated every piece of humanity. Last week, in verse 5 of chapter 6, we saw that, the, uh, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, human, human's heart, 
was only evil continually. Every intention was only evil continually. The human heart had corrupted itself, and the result was violence on the earth. So like I asked earlier, the question is, what's God to do with this? What's God to do with a world full of corruption and violence? So look with me to verse 13. God determines to wipe it out. He determines to bring a quick and a complete judgment on the violence and on the wickedness of man. And later in verse 17, it tells us how he's going to do that. God is going to send a flood. And he's going to send a flood that's going to destroy all life on the earth. And I have just a quick note with that. When we read something like the flood, we shouldn't try to desensitize it as Christians. We shouldn't try to make it comfortable or easy or brush over the fact that the flood is a terrible thing. The flood is a terrifying thing, and it's a painful thing. When we read it, it should make our stomachs turn. It really should. We shouldn't just try to make it easy for ourselves. When God brings his judgment against a wicked world, we shouldn't be happy about that. Okay? It should sink into us. And God himself is described in Ezekiel 33, 11, is, is not taking some sort of sick pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's disposition towards his world is one that delights in life. But God must punish sin. He must punish violence. He must punish rebellion. And as a good king, he has to bring justice. So if we're going to honor God and if we're going to honor his word, we have to know that God's justice, although it's not a happy thing, is right. God's justice against sin is correct. And it's, in a way, good. It's a good thing that we have a just God. And if we're going to do any justice to the story of Noah before us tonight, we have to see that it's not just a story about cute animals riding in a boat. It's a story of God's terrible justice and wrath against sin. We can't ignore that piece of the story. So in one important sense, the story of Noah and the flood teaches us about God's wrath against sin and his justice and judgment against it. But the story is also a story of salvation. God's judgment against sin and what we see in the wickedness of man sets a backdrop for us that helps us to see God's plan of salvation in here. And that's where I'd like to focus in on our first main idea, which again I call the the rising tide God saves through judgment. Again, the rising tide God saves through judgment. And I'll have to define that word through and what I'm meaning here in just a second. So in all the language of judgment and destruction, we see that God has a different plan for Noah, at least, in this world. In verses 14 through 16, God commands Noah to build an ark, right? He, did, he tells him to build this massive boat, and then in verse 18 expresses his intentions for Noah in this ark, that he's going to establish his covenant with Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God's intention is to provide a way of salvation through the waters of judgment for Noah and for his family. And God even commands Noah to bring animals with him to preserve their life as well. Noah obeys the Lord and proceeds to do this painstaking and long work of building an ark. But when the waters do come in chapter 7, Noah, his family, and all of the gathered animals have safe passage through the waters of judgment. So the language of being saved through the waters is important because One of the things that we see in the Bible is that salvation is always through judgment. We can't have judgment and salvation separated from each other since the fall. Noah and his family didn't get to just skip out on the whole flood thing. 
They had to ride through the violent wind and the violent waves through God's way of protection. They had to go through the waters to be saved. God's justice is always required that there is judgment against sin. And that remains for salvation. God can't just ignore salvation, uh, judgment. Judgment just can't be skirted around in God's plan. Just a couple examples that we see through the rest of the unfolding story of the Bible. Israel, when they... When they escaped from Egypt, it was through the waters of the Red Sea. And those waters were the judgment that God brought upon the armies of Egypt. They were saved through the Red Sea and not around it. As the coming day of the Lord is proclaimed by the prophets later in the Old Testament, it's a day of judgment for the wicked, but it's a day of salvation for the righteous. Their message is always judgment and salvation. The two always go hand in hand. And then as salvation is purchased for you, On the cross, it's through judgment. Salvation doesn't come to you apart from God's judgment. It comes through God's judgment on sin. If you're a Christian, it's not because judgment was ignored for you. It's because judgment was born for you by Christ. If you're a Christian, it's not because God ignored justice for you and judgment for you. It's because that judgment was born for you by Christ on the cross. And like Noah and his family being saved through the waters of the flood, we are saved through the judgment of God when we're identified with Jesus and we're identified with his death for us on the cross. And I'd like to highlight two points of application for this. The first one is be like Noah. Noah trusted in God's plan, way, God's plan of salvation. Hebrews 11.7, it tells us about Noah By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah had to trust in God's provided way of salvation, and Noah had to trust in God's warning that it was true, even though it was an event that was in the far future, even though it would take years and years for Noah to build this ark, he had to trust and have faith that what God said to him was true and that the way of escaping the flood was real, that what God had said was true to him. And that's true for us as well. So just a a quick point of this, an illustration of this is, If we're living in Wisconsin, I don't know how many of you were born here. I've lived in Wisconsin my whole life. You may have heard the joke that there are four seasons in Wisconsin. There's almost winter, there's winter, there's still winter, and then there's road construction, right? So there's four seasons. You got almost winter, winter, still winter, which is, I guess, like we're kind of right in that middle middle place. It feels like summer's hitting, but it's probably going to snow. I think it's snowing next Saturday, Right? So if you're really smart in Wisconsin, you prepare for winter nice and early. Like even right now as the snow is melting, you got to be thinking, you know, oh no, is my, is my snowblower working? Do I need to do any repairs on it before next winter comes? And at least if you're a little bit smart, you start planning by the time it's 80 degrees in August. You have to look to- forward to a reality that hasn't come yet. I remember growing up as a kid down in southern Wisconsin, we heated our house with wood. So as a child, I spent a lot of my days in the summer outside, Um, with my dad and with my brothers chopping down trees and chopping up the wood and hauling it and putting it down in our basement. And we were doing that because we knew that winter was going to come. We knew that the cold was going to come, and we had to be prepared for it. We can't 
in Wisconsin at least, just spend our whole summer and our whole fall being, living in ignorance of the coming of winter. And if you do, you're in for a real surprise when it does come. But how often do we live as, as if what God says isn't true? How often do we live and just ignore the reality that God, promises, that God promised is going to come? Just like in the days of Noah, God promised that he is going to once again judge the world. And either now you live in faith and obedience, knowing that God provides a way through that, or you choose to imagine and live in ignorance, thinking that the judgment's just not going to come. And in Jesus, God has provided a way through the flood of his judgment. And like Noah, you're called to faith, to trust in Jesus and know that God has provided a way for you. So our first application from that is we're called to a Noah-like faith. And that takes me right into our second application. Remember that I said that Noah is righteous, that he's blameless. And over and over again, we see that Noah is obedient to God. Although through this whole flood story, we never actually see Noah say a single word, what we do see from him is, is his actions. And every time God gives him a direction, over and over again, we see that Noah obeys it to a T. He does exactly what God commands. So I think for application for us, instead of being Noah that's escaping the flood, I think that we can even more accurately be described as Noah's family that's being taken through the flood. So Noah's family, if you think about it, they were saved through the flood not because of their own righteousness, not because they were great. They were saved because of the righteousness of Noah. We see nothing in the entire story about the righteousness of Noah's family. Yet they are saved on the basis of Noah's righteousness before God. And that's exactly what we see for ourselves as the story of salvation comes through in Scripture. And we see Jesus. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul makes it clear to us that salvation is through the righteousness of Jesus. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, if you're tempted to, and I know that I am, if if you're tempted to look at the perfection of your own faith and the perfection of your own obedience is the ground for your salvation, I, I want you to redirect your gaze. I want you to look at something else. Don't look at yourself. Look to Jesus in faith. Look at his perfect righteousness, which is the ground of your salvation. Trust in him to bring you through the judgment of God. So our first application is it's to be like Noah in his faith. But the second is that we should be like Noah's family. And as Christians, we should trust in Jesus, who is the better Noah, whose righteousness brings us through the flood waters. So that's our first idea. The whole idea is the rising tide that God saves through judgment. And that brings us to our second main idea, which again is called the tide turns, God saves through recreation. So in a way, uh, the whole story of Noah can be told through the rising floodwaters and the falling floodwaters. The whole passage is structured as a giant chiasm. It's this uh, literary technique uh, where the first set of concepts is repeated in reverse order. Um, So a a good way to explain it might be like A, B, C. It's like concept A, concept B, concept C, and then D in the middle, and then you have this repetition, C, B, A, back out on the other side. And I know that's not confusing at all, um, and the structure actually in Noah's story can get 
really detailed in looking through commentaries on this. I saw one that I think had over, over 10 pieces that paralleled in this rising and then falling of the story, and this giant parallel that draws us through the rising of the waters and the falling of the waters. But I think with that and in that giant chiasm, we can simplify it like this. God promises to destroy creation. They enter the ark. The floodwaters rise. And then the center's God remembers Noah. Now those themes reverse with the flood receding. They leave the ark and God promises to preserve creation. So the theme of God's judgment rises with the floodwaters and that's what we just looked at. But then we see a new theme emerging as the floodwaters recede. Recreation. And again, our second idea is that the tide turns. God saves through recreation. God saves through recreation. So it would be easy, I think, for us to look at the flood just as a story of God's judgment. But I think it's actually much more than that. There are parallels throughout this entire story to the creation story. And it shows us that what's really going on as the floodwaters rise is the decreation, the uncreation of God's creation. God is tearing apart what he had previously made. And I'm going to show you just a couple of these parallels, so there's more in there. In chapter 7, verse 11, if you have your Bibles open, this will be helpful for you to see. At the beginning of the flood, we read that the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. So in Genesis 1, 6 and 7, the creation story, God separated the waters that were above from the waters that were beneath. It's part of his creating act. And here in Genesis 7, those two waters, they come crashing back together in God's decreative act. In Genesis 1, 9, and 10, God separated the land out of the waters. And here in Genesis 7, we see the waters recovering and enveloping the land. And as the whole flood reaches its pinnacle, we've returned right to the very beginning of God's creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, 1, all that remained and all that was there was a formless mass of water. And when the floodwaters peak, that is all we have left. God has decreated his world. That good creation he made in Genesis 1 and 2 that fell, he has decreated it. He's tore it back apart. And that all that remains is this floodwaters covering the earth. And that's all we had at the beginning. So after that point, it all goes in reverse. Quickly, the flood subsides, land appears, the family and animals, they exit the ark. And God's recreation then ends just like Genesis 1 ended. And God commands Noah and his family in Genesis 8, 17 to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Which if you're familiar with the Genesis 1 story, is exactly what God commanded and commissioned Adam and Eve with. To be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And that's the same exact command that God gives Noah. It's a story of decreation and a story of recreation. God takes apart his creation and then he rebuilds it as the floodwaters go back, as the land emerges from the waters, as God recommissions his people to be fruitful and to multiply. But the question that we have to ask is, why does this matter? I mean, it's really cool. Like, it's a really awesome, you know, theological thing to see in the Bible. When I first noticed this, this is like mind-blowing. Wow, the story of Noah is so cool. But we have to ask, what, what difference does that make? What difference does it make that God decreates the world in the flood and that God recreates the world when the flood goes back? I think that God is showing us a glimpse into what his salvation is really like and what it's really about. 
Far too often, salvation, it's merely presented as a way of just uh, not getting judged in the end, as a way of not going to hell. And I mean, that's a part of salvation. If we're going to be honest with salvation, we have to proclaim, like we just saw in the first couple chapters we looked at, we have to proclaim that message of judgment because it's real. We need to know that it's coming, but it's more than that. If we just proclaim salvation is not going to hell, we're missing a huge and beautiful part of what God gives us in salvation. With the turning tide in Genesis 8, we realize that God's intention for salvation, it's more than not just getting judgment. God desires to restore what was lost, and he desires to restore the beauty and the goodness of his original creation. So Lexi and I, if, you, if you've gotten to know us, one thing you may know is that we love old homes. Uh, we like to dream about what they looked like back in their heyday, and there's an, a lot of awesome old homes in Oshkosh, and there have been days where we literally just drive, down, drive around some of the older uh, parts of Oshkosh, and we look at these majestic old three-story houses. One of the saddest things, though, for us when we're doing that is when we see this beautiful old home that has just been left to ruin. The people living in it, they haven't taken care of it. The, the roof has started leaking. You know, the foundation is cracked. Water gets in. Mold starts to grow. The paint is cracking. Windows, windows are broken. Things are starting to rot. The floors are ruined. Like, I, we almost want to cry when we see that because we see this beautiful thing and we wish that it was the way that it was. And it's just not. It's, it's broken down and it's old. And when you see that in an old home, sadly, like, there are two options really that you get. And the first is you could just level the place. Like you could just take it down, just tear the place down, build a whole new building, right? It's one thing that you could do. But the second is you can put in the painstaking work of restoring that old house. You could tear out the moldy walls. You could shore up the foundation. You could fix the roof. You can repaint the walls. You can take out the rot and replace it with new wood. You can put in a new driveway where it's cracked. You can restore what is broken. You can restore uh, that old house. And in Genesis 6 and 7, God's judgment against sin, the waters of the flood, he's tearing down and tearing out the rot and the mold in the old house. So in, in one way, the waters of judgment, the waters that come in the flood are, water, are waters of judgment. But in another way, the waters that come in the flood are waters of purification and waters of preparation for what God is about to do for a new creation. God's intention for this world, it's not simply to judge it and to destroy it. When Christ returns, it's going to be to create a new heavens. It's going to be to create a new earth. And this story, it gives us a beautiful glimpse into what we have to look forward to when Jesus comes back. And that's great news for you. It's really good news. Because if you're united to Jesus, if you pass through that judgment, what lies for you on the other side of that judgment is not just an eternal, boring existence in some ethereal, spiritual realm. What lies on the other side of judgment is a vibrant and colorful and new creation. A world with no pain, a world with no violence, a world with no corruption, and a world with no sin. I want you to long for that. I want you to yearn for that new creation. I want you to find hope that God's purpose is to recreate his world, to take away what was broken and to fix it and to make it new. That's beautiful news for us as Christians. It's awesome. I love thinking about that. But when we look at Genesis 8, if God recreated his world, 
then, then you know, what's, what's going on? Why, why is there still an issue here? Like, why is there still violence in the world? Why is there still pain in the world? Didn't God fix it when he recreated it? And I think that the recreation here in Genesis 8, it's one of the clearest pictures in the entire Bible of the foundational problem for mankind, the foundational problem in the world. So God started fresh with just about everything. But the thing that he didn't change from beginning of the flood to the end of the flood is the heart of people. In chapter 8, verse 21, God makes it clear that the intention of man's heart is still evil. He repeats that phrase from Genesis 6, 5, that the intentions of man's heart is evil all the time. He repeats that again after the flood has already come through. When I was in college, I studied fisheries management, which I promise is a real major, in case you're wondering. And one of the things that we had to learn about, and one of the classes I took was about how to eradicate invasive species. And one of the things you may have heard about in Wisconsin is Asian carp, especially down in the Illinois River, um, and this, the scare that they might get into uh, Lake Michigan. So if, if you have a pond in your yard, and an invasive species like this carp gets into it, you really only have one option. That option is to start over completely. Uh, generally, what a fisheries biologist is going to recommend is that you go in and you poison the thing. You just wipe out the entire, flood, uh, wipe out the entire pond and you start completely new. And the problem is that that often doesn't work because if, if only two carp survive the entire thing or if just some, some fish eggs survive the entire thing, then it's just, it's, it's for naught. You've, you've failed. The, the carp are going to come back and we see that over and over again as you know, the DNR and other people try to manage these invasive species, they just come back. They always bounce back if you don't completely remove the problem. You need complete eradication to deal with it. Now, I don't think God is a bad fisheries biologist, and I think that he could have wiped out the problem completely. But remember that he made a promise that a descendant of Adam and Eve's was going to crush the head of the serpent, was going to set things right. By protecting Noah and his family, God was staying faithful to his covenant promise. But the fact that sin survived the flood shows us what is to blame for the brokenness we see in the world. And it also keys us in to how the problem in the world can actually be fixed. So first off, humanity is to blame for the brokenness that we see in the world. And you have to own your part in that. And I have to own my part in that. I know that my heart is sinful. And part of the reason that we see this in the world is us. We're not like this holy group of people that's just so much better than everyone else that we never contribute to the problems in the world. Even as redeemed people in Christ, even as people that are being formed in the image of Christ, I know that I still sin. We have to admit that. It's, it's easy as people to blame the circumstances. We try to do that all the time, right? Blame shifting. It's, oh, if it wasn't for this circumstance or that thing or that thing that that person did, then, I, you know, I wouldn't have done that. You know, I wouldn't have sinned, right? It's someone else's fault. But if what Genesis 8 tells us about God's new creation and sin remaining, if that's true, then you could eliminate every single external temptation and every external problem in the world. But if your heart remained unchanged, the problem would still remain. As long as sinful humanity and their hearts, their sinful nature remains, the problem isn't totally fixed. So second, stop trying to fix yourself. Stop trying to fix the world on your own. Again, if you could somehow fix every external thing, 
yet your heart remained unchanged, you would be out of luck. So unless you can somehow completely remove your old nature and replace it with a brand new one, you're out of luck. And I don't think that you can do that. So for the problem to be completely fixed, you have to die and you have to be reborn. The sinful human nature must be completely put to death and be brought back to life anew for the problem to be fixed. But let me tell you, that's possible. It's not possible on your own, but it is possible. And God has done something to cause that to happen. Jesus was the better Noah. That's one of the things you take away. Know that Jesus is a better Noah. And as a representative of his people, he didn't just pass through judgment like Noah did. Jesus died under the judgment of God. He didn't just pass through it. He died under it. But he didn't stay dead. Jesus rose from the dead. And with a new life, his new life as a prick of light, and recreated light in this world of darkness, in this dying world, we have hope. In Jesus, his people are united to him in his death and in his resurrection. So if you're united to Christ by faith, then know that you've died in him. Your old self is killed. You're reborn. You are born again. And now we still live in the process of that happening. We still live with the effects of sin within us, but we long for recreation. We long for the day that God will create a new heaven and a new earth, and those who are in Christ, those of us who are united to him, will be resurrected as new people with Jesus and like Jesus. So the problem of the evil heart of man is dealt its final death blow in Jesus. And the problem is fixed. And if you're not in a relationship with Jesus, I want you to know that you can have real hope of being made new through him. Trust in him. Trust and turn to him. He can make you new. So, so far we've seen the rising tide. We see that God saves through judgment. We see the tide turning that God saves through recreation. So let's look at our last idea. Life on dry ground. God saves through setting aside judgment. So after the dramatic episode of decreation and judgment and recreation, God enters into a covenant with Noah and his family and actually with the entire world. Covenants are something we've already seen in Genesis. Uh, we saw God entering into a covenant with Adam in the garden. And it's something that we're going to continue to see as we work through the book of Genesis, especially as we get to Genesis 12 and 15 with, the, with Abraham, with the story with him. We're going to see God entering into a covenant there. And simply put, a covenant is an agreement between two parties with corresponding responsibilities and penalties for breaking the covenant. And in the Bible, Covenants are always initiated by God, and they're always given by God. People never negotiate the terms of God's covenant. Generally, there's something that people are told to do, but when God enters into a covenant here in Genesis 9, which we're going to look at, there are no stipulations for Noah, his family. There's no stipulations for the earth. God simply gives a promise. So let's look quickly at Genesis 9, 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow, excuse me, um, I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God's promise is simple. He promises to sustain his creation and to withhold his judgment. The covenant here is commonly called the covenant of common grace. And it's not common because it's ordinary. It's common because it's given to all people and to all things. It's given to the whole world. And in this covenant, God willingly lays aside his judgment. And despite the world's remaining sin, he shows that his disposition towards the world is one of care. God is going to care for his world, and he's going to protect it, and he's going to provide for it. So if if you're breathing air right now, it's because of God's common grace. If you ate a meal today, it's because of God's common grace. The Ackers providing food for us today, it's because of God's common grace. And even if you heard the birds sing this morning, it's because of God's common grace towards them and towards this world. It's a beautiful thing. And we can have peace knowing that God has decided to restrain his judgment on this world. So commentators, people who are writing on Genesis, they disagree as to whether or not uh, this was intentional. But the word for rainbow, it's translated bow in the ESV uh, because it's the same word used through the rest of the Old Testament in Hebrew for a battle bow. Maybe the bow that you'd hunt with, the bow that you'd take into battle with you. And so whether, whether or not that's an intended meaning of the passage, I think uh, the sign of God's covenant being a rainbow is actually a really good illustration of God's common grace for us. So when you see a rainbow and you think of a rainbow, you can think of it in this way, that in the flood, God's bow, his battle bow, was pointed at the earth. It was pointed towards the world and towards his creation in judgment. But in God's common grace, God takes his bow that has been pointed towards the earth and he hangs it up. He sets it aside. God's common grace is given to the world and he promises to not judge the world. He hangs up his bow as a sign of peace. And that's, whether or not that's intentional um, with Moses as he was writing uh, Genesis 9, I think that's a really good picture for us. An easy way for us to remember what's going on and even in the future to remember God's common grace. But in God's common grace, he's also holding back the sinfulness of man. So this means that no one is as bad as they could be by the grace of God. So when we look at the world and we see good, and we see people doing not terrible things, as we see people eating and having happy things happen, as all of this happens, the world is not as bad as it could be because God is preventing it from being so. God is protecting his world by holding back the sinfulness of man. And he does that in this passage in a few different ways. We don't have time to dive into those. But know that, um, that God is holding back the sin in this world. We still live in a world of sin and pain and violence. um, But I don't want to imagine what it would be like if God, for even a second, withheld his protective care for it. 
if he allowed the, the sinful human heart to corrupt absolutely. So just like God's recreation of the world in Genesis 8, God's covenant of common grace points us forward. It again shows us God's design, I think, for ultimate salvation. His promise, he promises his creation some peace, knowing that he will provide and he'll hold back his judgment. And I think that this shows us something more. It shows us God's desire for his entire creation is to exist in peace, to live under his providence, and to live with God where his judgment is not just set aside, but it's eliminated for good. God's justice is dealt with for good. It's not just held back anymore. And that's one thing we can look forward to. So a couple application points for you. First, remember that God's redemptive plan includes more than just people. Romans 8 tells us that the whole creation is groaning to be set free from its bondage. As Christians, we can have, I think, a too narrow view of God's redemption. We think that God's redemption and his plan of salvation is just for humanity, and it's just all about us. And it can give us this attitude about the world that, ah, it's just all going to burn anyway. It doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want on this planet. But we have to remember that God's redemptive purposes includes his entire creation, more than just mankind. And I think when we think about that, when we remember that God cares for his creation still, that it affects the way that we view it. And I'm not just saying that because I studied natural resources in college. I think we have to have a view of God's creation that remembers that his intent is to restore what he created and to protect it and to care for it. Secondly, I just want to ask you, what are you longing for? What's your hope in this world? If you're in Christ, your hope is that one day God will recreate all things and that you'll live in peace forever. You will enter a true and satisfying rest knowing God and knowing that he's not just going to hold back his judgment He's not just going to to keep it from being there. He's going to set it aside for good for you. The story of Noah, even, even though it's from the distant past, even though it's something that took place a long time ago, it gives us a picture of our future. It tells us what God's plan is for our future salvation. Jesus promised that he's going to return. Matthew 24, he tells us, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus will come back. And when he does, there are only two options for you. Either you will be as the world that was left to the flood, or you will participate in the beautiful recreation of God's perfect world. You're going to live with Christ in true and eternal rest. So look to Jesus. Look to his death as your passage through the waters. Look to his resurrection as your hope for one day being recreated and made completely new. And look to Jesus who gives you perfect rest. Long for all things to be made new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us a picture of what to look forward to. That just like in the days of Noah, Christ is going to return. That judgment will happen, but through him you've provided a way for us through the waters of the judgment. That we can be with you, that you will recreate your world and we can live in joy and we can live in peace and rest for all eternity. Thank you for that salvation in Christ. In his name, amen.